0: Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. On this episode, we have two love triangle murder cases for you. There is not much mystery as to who perpetrated the murders, but there certainly is as to the why. When was it that two people decided that the other person had to die? How did they decide that this was the only way to go? Where did the madness set in? And what created this culmination of sadness, madness, and evil? This is a true crime podcast. It contains details of murder and other assaults. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Our first case is the codependency love triangle murder. Codependence, definition. Excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner, typically one who requires support on account of an illness or addiction. Heather Strong, mother of two, went missing after working a shift as a waitress at a restaurant in a truck stop. Eventually, someone very close to her led the police to her body. Citra, Florida is located in Marion County near Ocala. Heather Strong was last seen at work at the Iron Skillet. She was reported missing February 15, 2009. Her remains were not discovered until March 19th. During the investigation before the remains were found, both Josh Fulham, Heather's husband, and Amelia Carr, Josh's sometimes lover, were persons of interest. Heather began dating Joshua Fulgham when she was only 15 years old. Josh was 22 at the time. The relationship was tumultuous. Lots of fighting, breaking up, and getting back together. They both grew up in Mississippi, but moved to Florida in 2003. They had two children together. During one of their separations, Heather and her kids moved in with Benjamin McCollum. He was a friend of hers, and the idea was that she would help out to take care of his kids, as well as her own. A relationship did develop between the two, which Josh could not tolerate. Even though he had been having sex with Amelia on and off for a while, it was okay for him, not okay for Heather to do. There was months of Josh stalking them and causing disturbances. It was said that he had even threatened them with a gun on a few occasions. Somehow, Josh convinced Heather to reconcile with him yet again, and in December 2008, she agreed to do so. Amelia was living with Josh at this time, and he just told her that she had to move out and he was getting back together with Heather. Amelia was pregnant at that point and told him that he was the father. He still wanted her to move out as soon as possible. Josh and Heather married December 26, 2008, and what the pictures show is a happy, attractive couple. It's too bad it couldn't be as it was pictured. They were married for only six days when Josh was arrested for threatening Heather with a shotgun during an argument. Amelia visited Josh while he was in jail. During the investigation into Heather's disappearance, Josh had told police that Heather had wanted to get out of Dodge, and she had told him to take care of the kids, and she would be back when she got things cleared up. He told them she was always doing this kind of thing, when in fact no one said that was the case. Heather did not leave her kids like that. When investigators found that Fulgham had used Heather's credit card after she had gone missing, they pulled him in to talk to him again. Josh Fulgham admitted to using the credit card, but said he had nothing to do with Heather's disappearance. He did, at this point, suggest that Amelia, who they were already aware of, might know something more. Amelia had a codependency to Josh. Josh was addicted to meth and Heather. Heather had a codependence issue as well. It was said she was raped by someone she knew repeatedly as a child. This is unconfirmed, but if true, explains a lot as she got no psychological help for the abuse that was inflicted on her. Her parents had a volatile relationship as well and Heather was there for that. Amelia Carr had a horrific home life. Amelia had been sexually abused by her father and grandfather while she was a child. She was just five years old when it started. This is documented as when she was 15, she went to the police and her father was arrested. He tried to get a fellow inmate to kill his family so that his daughter and wife would not testify against him. Thankfully, this was uncovered and he was convicted of solicitation to commit murder. He was sent to prison for two years. Amelia tells this chilling tale of the board that creaks right before her door and she would hear it and be terrified that it was going to be that night. She lived in fear of this every night as she was growing up. Amelia says she did not tell anyone until she was 15 because she was protecting her little sister who was born with medical issues. Amelia dropped out of school at age 15 and by 17 had already given birth to a son. Later it came out that Amelia was removed from her home at age 5 when her father and grandfather had been found to be sexually abusing her older sibling. The family reunited later without this sibling when the family moved. The sibling and older sister lived somewhere nearby with a grandmother. Amelia was pregnant with her fourth child at the time Heather Strong was murdered. What does codependence mean? Codependency is a learned behavior that can be passed down from one generation to another. It is an emotional and behavioral condition that affects an individual's ability to have a healthy, mutually satisfying relationship. What causes codependency behavior? Alcohol, drugs, or other addictions are common factors that may lead parents to prioritize their needs over their children's. This may cause the children to become codependent as adults. People who are codependent as adults often have problems with their parental relationship as a child. There was a lot more going on than just codependency for Josh, Amelia, and Heather, but this did come up in many of the reports. Josh used Amelia for sex. He always wanted Heather. He used horrible chauvinistic reasons to explain why he would go back to Heather and leave Amelia more than a few times. Look at Heather and look at Amelia, he would say. Amelia was an attractive young woman, but Josh saw Heather as the dream woman as far as looks. Slender, pretty, and to him, Heather was what a woman should look like. Josh maintained on multiple occasions that Amelia was just a sex partner. He said that his sex life with Heather went downhill after the birth of their second child. Amelia was there for the type of sex he was missing at home. Josh hooked up with Amelia whenever he was having problems with Heather. After Josh went to jail for threatening Heather with a firearm, Amelia was there for him. Word got back to Josh that Heather was going to leave the state and go back to Mississippi with the children. Some say he couldn't deal with them not being around, and he worried for their safety. Others say he just didn't want her to take the kids, and he would have to pay child support. Another theory yet was that Heather had slept with another man while Josh was in jail, and he could not deal with that. Amelia had a sad fixation on Josh and wouldn't let him go. Even though she had three other children and multiple baby daddies who left her, she still got pregnant with Josh's baby and did everything to keep him. Amelia loved her kids and said at trial that she was threatened she wouldn't see her kids again if she wouldn't tell them what they wanted to hear. She had to have known that when she was involved with the murder of Heather, that if she was to be caught, she would never see her kids again because she would be in prison. Why would she risk that? Was her fixation on Josh, her obsession, so intense that she couldn't see past it? Amelia got pregnant with Josh's baby, or so she said, according to Josh, and during a separation with Heather, Josh proposed to Amelia. The ring he gave her would be taken back by him months later when Josh decided to get back with Heather and to marry her for the first time. Even though Heather and Josh had been together 11 years at this point, they had never made it to marriage until then. Amelia told Josh's sister that she helped Josh murder Heather. This was in a recorded conversation with Michelle, Josh's sister, who was working with detectives. She made statements that only someone who was there would know. It matched the evidence. At trial, however, Amelia said she talked to Michelle for a different reason. She was trying to get information from Michelle about what Josh did to Heather so that she could help authorities and get her kids back. Josh was the one who lured Heather to the trailer. When Amelia walked in, Heather knew it was a trap, and she tried to escape. They shoved her down onto a chair and duct-taped her legs to the chair. They duct-taped her hands and her torso to the chair as well. Amelia tried to break her neck, but was not strong enough to do it. Heather pleaded for her life, but they said no. They suffocated her by putting a plastic bag over her head and duct taped it around her neck. They held her hands over her mouth and nose. Heather was just 26 years old. This was in a storage trailer, so they put her body into large black trash bags and left it there until the next day. They came back and buried Heather's body near the trailer and covered it with brush and other debris. This is where Josh would eventually lead the police. Boiled down, this was about a husband and a girlfriend who joined together to kill and bury his wife. This was premeditated murder. This was thought about well in advance with plenty of time to come to their senses and not do it. Amelia was at first sentenced to death. She was one of five women on death row in the state of Florida. On May 19, 2017, Amelia Carr was re-sentenced to life without parole. Josh was sentenced to live in prison without parole. During trial, a cousin of Josh's testified that he had been sexually abused as a child as well. This is something that Josh denied later after the trial and sentencing were done with. It has been noted that men sometimes will not admit to that happening to them, even if it has. No one knows for sure the truth for Josh, but it helped save him from the death penalty. For Amelia, her horrendous abuse did not come out in trial or during sentencing. If it had, one would hope that she originally would not have been sentenced to death, but the same as Josh, life in prison. Her sentence was changed in 2017, though, as I said, and she is just as Josh now, with life in prison. All three, Heather, Josh, and Amelia, had issues in childhood. Heather and Amelia had traumatic childhoods, that most definitely would affect them, especially with getting no help with that trauma. Josh, it's unknown. The murder of Heather Strong, the loss of a mother to her children, the loss of a father to those children because he is now in prison, the loss of another mother to her children because she is now in prison, all because of a love triangle that was toxic and sad. Our second case is West Covina Love Triangle Murder. In 1951, Dr. Bernard Finch got divorced from his first wife, Frances, and married a woman named Barbara, who also just divorced a man named Lyle Daughtry. This is where it gets interesting already. Dr. Finch's ex-wife, Frances, marries Barbara's ex-husband, Lyle Daughtry, so they basically have swiped spouses. Dr. Finch and his first wife, Frances, also had children together, so it was probably very weird when the kids went to stay at the other parents' home. In 1955, four years after marrying his second wife, Barbara, Dr. Bernard Finch hires a pretty 18-year-old girl named Carol Tragoff Papa to work as the receptionist at his medical office. Carol was promoted rapidly to first medical secretary and then to personal assistant to the doctor. Carol was really incredibly gorgeous. I'll post pictures on social media. I usually post pictures there of the main characters in the cases that I cover, so be sure to take a look. So back to the story. Barbara was known as a beauty herself, and she was an athlete who could keep up with Finch. Both she and Dr. Finch enjoyed playing tennis together, and they were quite good at it. No one knows for sure when the romantic relationship began with Finch and his assistant Carol, but it was certain that they were involved by 1958. Barbara found out about it and took steps to end it. Turns out Carol was married as well. Barbara contacted Carol's husband James to see what he thought they should do. James said they talked, but they didn't come up with any concrete ideas. They just talked about how the two of them had been seen out and about and away together in Palm Springs. Carol was the one who ended up making the move and filed for divorce from her husband James in January of 1959. She took her maiden name back and rented a place where Finch would visit her frequently. He also helped pay the rent, of course. In May of that same year, Barbara had had enough, and she filed for divorce alleging adultery and extreme cruelty. Barbara claimed that Finch had hit her on more than one occasion. One day, Barbara had shown her maid a bloody sheet and told her that Finch had tried to kill her the night before. Also, she had told the maid that her husband threatened to kill her and he knew how he would do it, and on another occasion had told her that he had hired someone else to kill her. After this, she went to see a private investigator about getting a bodyguard. She also asked about the process to get a concealed carry license for a handgun. She hired the PI to gather evidence of her husband's adultery. Dr. Finch's assets were worth over $6 million in today's money. Back then, they didn't have the no-fault divorce laws in California, and she would have gotten a big chunk of that. Soon after Barbara filed for divorce, Carroll moved to Las Vegas in an effort to not be named as a co-respondent in the divorce case. Most likely, Finch had some hand in this. While visiting Carroll in Las Vegas, Finch tried to hire an ex-con to kill his wife. He gave the man Jack Cody $1,400, but the guy just took the money and ran. He would come back into the picture later. Both Finch and Carroll returned to West Covina in July of 1959. In January 1960, a newspaper article was put out in the St. Joseph Press about the autopsy finding that came out in the trial. An autopsy surgeon said the death of socialite Barbara Jean Finch. Her skull was fractured. She was shot in the back. Her skull was fractured again. She died of a massive hemorrhage caused by the bullet wound. Dr. Gerald K. Ridge testified at the murder trial and gave this account. Her skull was fractured on the left side when in her garage, she was either brutally struck or slammed against a wall. She ran and in flight was struck from behind by a bullet which passed completely through her chest. Dying, she collapsed while going down the steps to the neighboring yard and struck her head on some hard object. Dr. Bernard Finch and Carol Tragoff were actually hiding in the bushes when Barbara Finch got home on the night of July 18, 1959. The Swedish au pair Marie Anne Lindholm heard a scream from the garage and went running to find Barbara dazed and bleeding. She had been pistol whipped. Finch tried to force his wife and the au pair into the car. Barbara became more alert and ran away into the yard. The au pair was able to run the opposite way into the house and called the police. While inside, she heard a gunshot and she went out to find Dr. kneeling beside his dead wife. He told the au pair that she had shot herself in the struggle for the gun. However, forensics showed that she was shot in the back from a distance. Carol Tragoff and Dr. Finch fled the scene before the police arrived. They were later apprehended in Las Vegas. At the scene of the murder, police found a brown attache case that belonged to the doctor. It contained syringes, needles, and a large amount of sedatives, as well as a rope, butcher knife, and a half-empty box of 38 caliber bullets. This was later referred to as the murder kit in the trial and newspapers. Details of ridiculous schemes came out after this. Tregoff and Finch had tried to hire a gigolo to seduce Barbara so that Finch could countersue for infidelity. Eventually, Finch realized that the guy had no chance of seducing Barbara, So instead, he gave him the money to kill her. Instead of doing the hit, the would-be hitman took the money and took off. Finch's next plan was to somehow sedate Barbara and put her behind the wheel of her car and then push it off a hundred-foot cliff. The horrible mess of a murder that happened just outside of Barbara's house was not a plan. Both Cody, the drifter who took the hitman money and ran, And the au pair gave potent testimony, which definitely helped convict both Finch and Tragoff in 1961. Although there were two hung jury mistrials before that, so they almost did get off. Both were sentenced to life, but did not do anything close to that. Carol Tragoff served just eight years. She changed her name and returned to living somewhere in West Covina. Dr. Bernard Finch served just 10 years. He moved to the Missouri Ozarks and started his medical practice back up. He stayed there until 1984 and then moved to Palm Springs until death in 1995. The Daily News New York reported that Carol Tragoff had cried when sentenced, that she would be an old woman when she got out of prison. They said when she was paroled in 1969, she was not old, but she was drab and dowdy. They reported that Finch, when paroled in 1971, was denied a medical license in California and so went to the Ozarks, where he married a psychiatric social worker and set up a practice there. Again, as so often with many of these cases, it seems utterly ridiculous that they were each able to go on and just do life again, while Barbara certainly had no chance of that. Stay tuned for the historic portion of the podcast when we go over newspaper reports that are similar to the cases we covered in today's episode. Please note, I am reading the newspaper accounts exactly as they were written and printed in the respective year, style, etc., including any errors. Uh, They have some interesting differences from what we're used to nowadays so here we go the first one is yates freed on murder charge this is from april 1st 1933 the miami herald took place in jacksonville florida the love triangle trial of lc yates 22 year old motor transit company employee ended here today when a jury acquitted him of a murder charge in the recent fatal shooting Of Robert E. Causey, an employee of the same company. Deliberations on Yates' fate was begun by the jury yesterday. During the trial, Yates claimed he attempted to reason with Causey for the alleged breaking up of the Yates' home and killed Causey with a pistol when the latter advanced toward him with a putty knife. Mrs. Yates, who testified in her husband's behalf, told of how she had left him for Causey and of their love affair. She identified love letters she said Causey sent her shortly before his death. She also had said Causey had named her beneficiary in a $1,000 insurance policy on his life. And that guy was, uh, he was acquitted on that one. It's pretty, pretty interesting. The next one we have up is tr- Triangle Killer Held Not Guilty. Triangle Killer Held Not Guilty. Elgin, Michigan. July 17, 1954. The Love Triangle murder case against Dr. Kenneth B. Small, Detroit dentist who killed his pretty wife's admirer, ended in a dramatic verdict of acquittal by reason of insanity early today. An Elegant County Circuit Court jury of 11 men and one woman returned its verdict at 1.40 a.m. after five hours and four minutes of deliberation. Women spectators screamed... Others applauded. Some women kissed Dr. Small. The verdict, in effect, held that Dr. Small, 31, society dentist, was not mentally responsible when he shot and killed Jules M. Lack, 45, New York playboy industrialist, at a swank summer cottage near here last Memorial Day weekend. At the time, Small's brunette wife, Edith, 30, mother of three boys, was a guest with Lack at a house party. The husband had trailed her to the cottage after becoming suspicious of her story. She was with a woman friend in Chicago. Mrs. Small was not in the courtroom at the time of the verdict. She had secluded herself beforehand. Again, this guy's acquitted. This one is The Times. This comes from The Times in Streeter, Illinois, on May 9, 1936. Hint, new arrests in Love Triangle murder of Farmer. Akelder, Iowa. A hint of new arrests came from officials today as they probe deeper into the love triangle slaying of a 60-year-old Corn Belt bridegroom. Five persons were held by Sheriff L.J. Palace handling the investigation of the death of Dan Shine from Littleport, Iowa. There is a strong possibility other arrests will be made. In custody were Mrs. Pearl Shine, 30, red-haired bride of a week, her admirer, Maynard Lennox, 18, in custody were Mrs. Pearl Schlein, 30, red-haired bride of one week, her admirer, Maynard Lennox, 18, East Dubuque, or Dubuque Illinois, harmonica player, and three of her relatives, Jim, Howard, and Minnie Hines. The sheriff said Mrs. Shine made a new confession containing several startling disclosures and implicating her uncle, Jim Hines, last night. He did not mention the new revelations, but asserted, Mrs. Shine flatly denies that she fired the shot which killed her husband. Lennox has denied he was the trigger man. They are accusing each other of firing the shot. Shine's body was found in an upstairs closet of his home Wednesday. Part of his head had been torn off by a shotgun blast. His right hand clutched a piece of string which had been fastened to the trigger. Sheriff Pallas said Lennox had signed a statement saying Mrs. Shine disliked her elderly husband and had talked of killing him so she could marry Lennox. Toward evening Tuesday, the youth was quoted, She got the gun. I stayed out of the front room, and soon the gun went bang. I helped her with him and tied the string up in the closet. We went back to Jim and Hines. And Jim said, I better go home. Previously, the sheriff quoted Mrs. Shine as saying Lennox slew her husband after declaring, I love you, Pearl, and I will get him out of the way so I can live with you. The Shines lived together several days. A deed transferring Shine's 80-acre farm to his bride was filed a few hours before his death. Hmm... Got another doctor one here. Uh, It is. Got another doctor one here. This is from Alexandria, Louisiana, May 16, 1949. Love Triangle Murder Trial of Doctor to Reopen. From Cedar Rapids, Iowa. A court ruling on the defense motion for a directed verdict of acquittal was scheduled to open the proceedings today in the Love Triangle Murder Trial of Dr. Robert C. Rutledge, Jr. of St. Louis. Defense attorneys, meantime, meantime remain silent on the order which defense witnesses would be called to the stand. The 28-year-old children's specialist is charged with fatally knifing his wife's bachelor admirer, Byron C. Hatman, 29, also of St. Louis. At least a dozen defense witnesses were expected to be called before the defense rests its case. The defense has said that it will prove that 1. Hatman took Mrs. Rutledge on a party last July 31st, plied her with liquor, then took her to the Rutledge apartment and seduced her. 2. Mrs. Rutledge thereafter refused to associate with Hatman, but he pursued her, boasted to the young physician of his conquest, and demanded a fee to leave her alone. 3. Dr. Rutledge went openly to Cedar Rapids last December 14th to meet Hatman. And discuss a means of paying him off to get him out of our lives. Four, the men became angry during their hotel room conference. Hatman drew a pocket knife and they fought the fight which ended in Hatman's death. This last one is from the Post Register, Idaho Falls, Idaho, September 20th, 1932, and it took place in Butte, Montana on September 20th, 1932. Love Triangle slaying occurs in Lemhigh County. Butte, Montana. The Butte Daily Post, in a story from its Salmon Butte, Montana. The Butte Daily Post in a story from its Salmon, Idaho correspondent, says Lemhigh County officers looked upon the fatal shooting of George Boggan yesterday as the end of a love triangle. Boggan, a hide buyer, was shot and killed by his wife Marguerite. The tragedy occurred in a house occupied by Helen Hall, who, together with Mrs. Boggin, is held in jail at Salmon. Officers were told that Mrs. Boggin went to the house yesterday morning to persuade her husband to return home, and failing, shot him in the heart. The weapon, they say, belonged to Helen Hall. The wife is reported to have admitted the shooting. And that's all we've got today. I will go ahead and start reading the uh, super exciting part. Of the sources for this episode after this. Uh, Please visit the podcast on social media to see the pictures of the people involved in the cases that we cover um, and also to share our true crime interest. Cherry Avenue True Crime is on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also visit us and send us a message at the website cherryavenuetruecrime.com. If you would like to support the show you can visit Patreon. It is at patreon.com slash Crime. Or you can also make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, CherryAvenueTrueCrime.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing on your podcast app and or telling a friend. Thank you so much for your support, however you choose to do it. Please know you are very, very much appreciated. The sources for the episodes today, uh, To Love and Kill is a book by M. William Phelps. It's a good book. Gets deep into the cases of their lives of... um, Heather Strong and uh, her killers. I recommend it if you want to read more about that case. To Love and Kill by M. William Phelps, P H E L P S. Also used O'Kella.com and Murder of Heather Strong Wikipedia. Newspapers from 1959, 1960, and 1961 are follows The Berkshire Eagle, The Los Angeles Times. Daily News New York and also a website oxygen.com. There was a clip on there of Josh trying to pretend that he knew nothing about Heather's disappearance and that's at oxygen.com and there's a whole big long backslash thing that I will put that in the show notes if you wanted to click on that and and, uh, take a look at that. Thank you again for listening and please as always be safe.